New Year's series last week called From What Is to What If? Which makes sense, the, 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 that wording. We're Jersey people here, and, and there's no more Jersey saying than it is what it is. But have you ever wondered, what if it isn't actually what it is? Or at least what if it doesn't have to be what it is? Inspired by what I'm seeing happening in our town, in my home, increasing levels of anxiety, hopelessness that seems to be settling in on our culture, spurred on specifically by what's become an epidemic in our teens, my hope is in this series to introduce to our church, to everyone in the room, to each of you, I'm speaking to each of you because you're influencers. You are an influencer to our kids and to our town. And I want to speak to our kids, if you're willing to listen to an old pastor teach you about a new rhythm for living, a pattern, if you will, for understanding life and accessing, unleashing the provision of God, what He has for you, His kid in your life. Because the world, our town, our kids, they're looking in an ever-increasingly dark world for people of light and a place of hope, and I want to be that. I want you to be that. And so towards that end, we're looking at the components of the only pre-resurrection miracle of Jesus that all four of the gospel writers, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, Remember, these are four very real men writing at different times, at different places, to different audiences, with different purposes. This is the only miracle that all four of them believed had to be included. It was necessary when they wrote about Jesus. Even if you're not a churchgoer, you've probably heard about the story of the fish and the loaves. I don't even like using the word story because, again, it's not a story. We have multiple firsthand accounts of this. And the research of Luke, the physician, who said he did a careful investigation of all these things, Luke included the feeding of 5,000 with just a few fish and loaves. If you missed last week, I'd love for you to go online and listen to it to, to kind of catch up on where we are. But here's what we discovered. What Jesus did with those fish and those loaves actually was repeated over and over and over and over and over again in the New Testament accounts. In fact, it's a, it's a pattern that occurs on five separate occasions in the Scriptures, and each time this pattern occurs, it introduces, it invokes into a world of scarcity the abundance, provision, and blessing of God where suddenly what is wasn't all there was. You know the story. Here's how John recorded it. He said, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, he asked this only to test them, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus is testing Philip to see and to understand how he thinks. He's been walking with Jesus for some time now. Jesus, the Son of God. This Philip had seen a lame man walk, and he had seen a leper healed. Philip was a man who believed a good amount. I mean, he had given up some amount of his life story to follow Jesus, but he was still, and I think we're guilty of this, he was still a man who had his feet firmly planted in the world of what is and not the world of what if. 
A man who lived and understood the world to be a place of scarcity and didn't understand that he was standing right next to the God of abundance. But Philip was about to have his eyes opened. That's my prayer for us. Philip answered him. He said, Jesus, in proverbially, you're nuts. It would take more than a half a year's wage to buy enough bread just for everyone here to have just one bite. Jesus, you must not be from Jersey because it is what it is. Jesus, you got a couple of small loaves here and some puny fish. We, we don't have it. In fact, another disciple called out, Jesus, give it up. Just send him home. John goes on, another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, well, he spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far are they going to go among so many? Here, here's a boy, a boy, Andrew said, a, a child who steps forward with the faith of a child, a, a boy who, who chooses to come forward because he sees things, differently than Philip or Andrew, and because of the way he sees things, because of how he does, he doesn't hoard his fish and loaves in the face of scarcity. He doesn't look around and go, oh man, there's not going to be enough. I better hide these. But instead, he offers what he has to the cause of the God of, of abundance, and everything changes. He sees in the little he has, stick with me now, he sees in the little that he has the capacity that everyone else who had their feet plant, firmly planted in the world of what is, didn't. The pattern of provision that gets unleashed here that we discovered last week, you're going to see it now and then over and over again. What does Jesus do? Jesus takes the bread, he, bre he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. He takes he blesses, he breaks, and he gives. And it's that rhythm, that pattern, that is not how you and I tend to walk. What I want to look at and move towards together in the coming weeks, in fact, I've given you a resource to do this. Um, I told you about a, a book last week called um, The God Guarantee. Hate the title, love the book. Um, you guys almost sold out. We don't make any money on these books. We sell them for what we get them for. It's $5. We're going to be kind of tracking in that material. A lot of you are readers. A lot of you want more information on topics. I, I can't encourage you. Go to the more. Go to the Engage Center. Go see Laverne and Shirley on the way out. When you're there, asking them the questions, they would love to give you one of these books so you can work through this material with us. What I would like to do is, is begin to think, help you and I to think differently. What would it look like to live in 2020 in this pattern of taking, blessing, breaking, and giving? What could it release in our lives? How do, you, how do you access God's promises for provision and life abundant? This is really interesting. The gospel writers are in agreement about this one, one topic. Jesus feeds the 5,000, and immediately afterwards, he puts the disciples in a boat, and he sends them out ahead of him to a city called Bethsaida. Now, I think he did this because, again, he had just shown them this concept and he wanted to get a feel for now where their feet would be planted in the world of what is or, or the world of what if. So Jesus sends them off. He goes up to pray on the mountain. A short time later, Mark records that the boat they were in was now in the middle of the lake. 
And Jesus looks out and he sees the disciples straining away at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, which tells me they had been trying to get towards Bethsaida for a while and they weren't getting anywhere, things weren't going the way that they had planned. Shortly before dawn, he goes out to them walking on the lake. He's about to pass them, which is interesting. But when they saw him walking on the lake, here's what they thought. Oh, there's Jesus. You know, guys, Jesus, the one who raised the dead, the one who made the blind to see, the lame to walk. And so they thought, let's call on Jesus to help us because remember all of the things we've seen? We're the sons of God. We're the chosen disciples of the Son of God. Is that what they thought? No. In a word, no, because scarcity thinking, even when you know the God of abundance, is not easy. Mark writes, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out, which I think that means they were literally grown men crying, because they saw him and were terrified. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, Take courage, it's me. Don't be afraid. And he climbed in the boat with them, and, and the wind died down. And here's what Mark wrote. He said, they were completely amazed. Do you know why they were amazed? For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Do you understand about the loaves? Do you get it? To help you understand, to do that, we have to take Step one in this pattern of change, and that is that we have to take the bread. We have to take what God has given us, what he surrounded us with, and we have to begin to view it differently. See, that boy that came forward, that boy who had that childlike faith that Jesus said we would need to change and have in order to enter the kingdom of God, he comes forward because he sees in five small loaves and two small fish the same thing Jesus did the capacity to feed 5,000. Capacity. That's what James Alexander notes this step one as. In, in Jesus' miracle of provision on the hillside, he takes the bread, and I love this, and looking to heaven, and looking to heaven, he didn't look at the people in the crowd with their pressing needs and get overwhelmed. He didn't look at the people in the crowd and go, well, there's a lot of doubt here. Maybe they're right. See, he wasn't interested in who's, who, who the, the people said that the boy was. Well, he's just a boy. He wasn't interested in, in the situation that existed before him, a couple of small fish and loaves. He didn't look to his disciples who followed him but hadn't seen the entire picture yet. He looked to God the creator of all that can be. And as a result, he saw not what this meager meal was, but he saw what it could be. He saw the capacity of what he'd been given. Capacity. Alexander defines it as the fulfillment of opportunity God created in each thing and person for his purposes and glory. Being open to seeing this capacity in every person and everything, and hear me on this now, I think this would help. I know it would help our kids, and I know it'll help you. 
seeing the capacity that God has created in you, in each other. That's the first aspect of understanding the pattern that Jesus understood. Now, capacity is the term we're using here, and it's different than the word potential. I love the Geico commercials. I don't know who sits around and thinks of these things. Uh, my kids and I have been cracking up a lot because they, they, they've gone back to one that was a few years old. So we've been cracking up about this one about Pinocchio. Have you seen the Pinocchio one? If you haven't, here it is. Check this out. Well, did you know Pinocchio was a bad motivational speaker? I look around this room and I see nothing but untapped potential. You have potential. You have... Oh, boy. <laughs> Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. I'm telling you, we laugh at that so hard in my house. And so I started trying to figure out why I think it's so funny. Because <laughs> it's not that funny. But I can't stop laughing at it. And I, I, as I reflect on it, I guess... I guess a couple of things came to mind. I, I think the first thing is that when we see the guy in the polyester suit and the cheesy mustache, we see the reality of potential. We see the truth, and it's this. Potential has its limits. And that guy's potential is limited. But Pinocchio, the motivational speaker, he's a little like my mom and dad. As I wrote to you this week, in our house growing up, and I've passed this along to my kids, you know, I probably decent parenting advice. There was a mantra heard often around the Eisman house. You can be anything you want when you grow up. Often it was tied to working hard, right? If you work hard, you can be anything you want when you grow up. There's something about parents and seeing potential in their kids, their sons and daughters, seeing things in them maybe the rest of the world doesn't see. It's a true story. <laughs> My sister and brother remind me of it almost weekly now. They were at my mother's house recently, and the TV was on, and I'm, I'm not sure if it was, you know, one of the celebrity uh, news shows was on or if the movie The Notebook was on. I'll have to get confirmation from them. You guys know the movie The Notebook? Um, anyway, my mom was looking at the, the TV, and she proclaimed out in utter amazement, I just can't get over how much that guy looks like your brother John. It's almost scary, she said. He's the spitting image. And it was at that point that my sister spit, all right, the food right out of her mouth. She said, that guy? Ryan Gosling? You think John looks just like Ryan Gosling? And my mother said, they could be twins. Why are you laughing? I was... Nobody sees it? <laughs> Mom, these people are being mean. Because you see, it's a true story. I mean, I say it. Where, where my sister saw scarcity, my mother saw abundance. Here's the deal, though, with, with my mom and my dad. They meant well, but they were mistaken. It was an honest mistake, but the reality is I, I, I can't be anything I want to be. 
I mean, it's an inspirational quote, but it's just not true. I, I could not be the shortstop for the New York Mets. I wanted to be. I worked hard at it. I mean, heck, it's the Mets. You would think it's not that hard to actually be the Mets shortstop. <laughs> but I couldn't be. God did not make me with enough athletic ability. I mean, I could practice forever. I'm never going to be the shortstop for anybody. I don't think I'd be the church's shortstop. I wasn't given the ability to do so, nor was I going to be alignment for the Dallas Cowboys. I wasn't given the size for that. I could go on, but you get it. Stick with me here. Potential has limits. Even Pinocchio understood it. I love how Alexander described the difference in his book. He said, he wrote, when I speak to groups or individuals about capacity, someone usually asks if it's the same as potential. That's a more familiar word today, used liberally by self-help folks and business consultants alike. He said, I choose to use capacity instead of potential because potential often refers to limited, tangible projects we explore without God's intervention. What I'm describing here when he's talking about capacity is more than learning how to turn an unused closet into a mini media center or how to make the manufacturing process of a new product more profitable. Those ideas are based on human capabilities and are limited to what we can see and maximize with our human perspective, potential. Searching for potential, in other words, encourages people to be intuitive but not prayerful and open. Capacity, however, can only be seen with God's perspective because it's based on God's abilities and God's provision. Potential is always limited. Capacity is limitless. And understanding the difference is crucial. Jesus saw not the potential of the loaves. That was limited. But he saw the capacity of his dad for doing something with the loaves that would achieve his father's ends and glory and desires for his people. See, you and I are steeped in the mindset of potential, but we've lost the sight and faith in the capacity of a great God. You were taught, and we teach our kids something about potential that I think has hidden in it part of why we wind up in places of hopelessness and full of anxiety. Actually, I think it might be two things. First is we tell them they can be or do anything, that they have unlimited potential, which is not true. What that says to them and what it said to you and me is that we were created for our own purposes and for our own ends. And those ends are our personal goals or happiness or satisfaction. And by the way, corporate America has caught on that we've taught this to our kids. And they have paraded before each of us on a daily, a daily basis, dozens of times a day, what those ends would look like. What your family should look like. What your house should look like. The car should look like. Your wife should look like. Your watch should look like. Use your unlimited potential to get these things. These things are the goal, and you have what it takes to get them. And if you can't get these things, or they don't look like that, well, you didn't live up to your potential. Potential's end is the glorification of me. I did it. 
I'm alone here. Remember last week we talked about this concept that everybody's now saying, I'm enough, I'm enough. I'm telling you, you're not enough. You were created to live in community with God. See, potential says it's about me. I made it. And it's a cruel reality. It's a cruel reality for those who, who all, all of us do this, uh, who come to a very real and stunning realization, I don't actually look that much like Ryan Gosling. I, 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 can't, I can't play D1 sports. But it's also cruel to those who chase potential to its end and come to the stunning realization that so many have. I made it. I got the car and the hot wife and the big house. But, but I'm still not happy. The, the great Jim Carrey actor, comedian quote, he goes, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Here's how God framed this. <laughs> He's so, you know, breaking news, God's really smart. Here's how God framed this to his people through the prophet Jeremiah. He had Jeremiah say this, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. They have forsaken me, dropped me. They've left me out of the picture. They've taken me out of their equation. They have not considered me, my plans, my ways, my purposes, or how and why I created them. They dropped me, sin one, and they've dug their own cisterns broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They tried to find life and purpose and meaning and joy and happiness in something other than me and what I created them for, the purpose I had for them, and it wasn't there. What if we changed the way we thought? What if instead we began to see ourselves and others and our stuff and our situations through the lens of capacity? What if we didn't forsake and forget God in the equation of our lives? What, what if it wasn't about discovering our potential, but discovering our purpose? Why was I created the way I was with the gifts I was? What if we began to live with, with happiness not being the ends and money or power or prestige not being the means, but instead with God's purposes for our lives being the ends? and capacity, discovery being the means. Alexander points out, you know, the world screams about capacity. You just don't see it. When we walk on the beach and we feel the sand beneath our toes, we rarely consider we're stepping on the second most abundant element on earth, silica. It has existed for as long as the earth has had dry land, but only in the past few decades have people discovered some of what it can do. When it's purified, made into igots, and then sliced into wafers, it can be manufactured into microchips and semiconductors. These chips become the brains of our laptops, our smartphones, our cars, and more and more often even our homes. Aspirin was originally developed from the bark of a willow tree. Do you know how many centuries people walked by that willow tree with a headache? Scientists are using specific, specific genetic sequences found in sea urchins to formulate new responses to Alzheimer's disease and cancer. Penicillin comes from a fungus. Chronic high blood pressure is treated with a derivative of viper venom. The most common malignancy of childhood, acute lymphatic leukemia, is treated with a medicine derived from Madagascar periwinkle. Five of the top ten prescription drugs have animal, plant, or microorganism origin, origins. 
Many more drugs come from plant-derived sources. You see, the world screams to us a lesson of capacity. See it differently. All that you see is not all that there is. There's more. It's not just it is what it is. It could be so much more. Taking the bread means that you and I choose to see in ourselves, and sometimes that hard, that's hard, but to see in ourselves and others the capacity for what God could and would do, not for your glory and advancement, because that won't even make you happy in the long run, but for His and His purposes and His ends, which will bring you the joy and purpose you've been longing for but it's going to require that you begin to see things differently. That you begin, like a little boy with a couple of fish and loaves, to walk, to step forward by faith and not by sight. This is really interesting. Mark records in the very same chapter, in the very same chapter he records the feeding of the 5,000, he records another story. This is so good. Check this out. It says, Mark says, Jesus left there and he went to his hometown, he went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? But then notice the, the transition. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't, aren't those his sisters over there? And they took offense at him. Well, who is he really then to be teaching us? Jesus said a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. Why? Because in your hometown, they have their feet firmly planted in the world of what is, not what if. This is, this is just Jesus the carpenter. He is what he is. A capacity for the miraculous? No. I know his sister. I used to throw stuff at him at lunch. We saw this kid grow up. Nothing special here. But here comes the haunting line. Gosh, do you know the line that comes next? It's really quite troubling. The result... This is how important this is. This is the result of failure to see capacity and to live as people of faith. Mark writes, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Understand, Jesus is God. He was certainly capable of doing miracles there if he chose. It turns out it was the people's choice that kept the provision God had away from them. They chose to live in the world of what is. Mark concluded this way. He was amazed at their lack of faith. You know, the Bible only tells two times that Jesus was amazed. That big, thick Bible you have home, sitting home, two times it says Jesus was amazed. Once it was the, at the faith once it was at the faith of a centurion, a Roman commander, and his faith amazed Jesus and it resulted in the healing of his son. The provision of God plays out in the centurion's life. This is the second time Jesus was amazed by their lack of faith. No miracles there. You know, at the heart of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, here's, 
Here's what Paul wrote. He said, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. In other words, stick with me. I want you to think with, with me on this. In other words, it's faith that saves us eternally. How do I get to heaven? How do I avoid hell? I have faith in the Son of God who saved me. It's faith that saves me. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation. It comes by faith in the Son of God. But let me ask you a question. Consider this. Is it also possible that it is by this same faith, walking, trusting in God, believing in His abilities and capacity, seeing ourselves and others the way He does, is it possible that walking by faith and believing in God's capacity is what saves us in this life? Childlike faith allowed a little boy to see capacity in a few meager fish and loaves. Do you see the capacity in others? Your kids, your spouse, your job, your situation, do you see your own capacity, what God has for you, why he made you? Can you see yourself the way that young boy and Jesus saw the small amounts of fish and loaves? Could you live with that kind of faith, expecting God to show up? You should. You know, it was Einstein who came up with the theory of relativity. And I, I go down a lot of rabbit trails when I study, and so I was on a rabbit trail this week about the theory of relativity, which when you start to understand the space time continuum, which, by the way, I will address next week, interestingly enough. You can look forward to that. When you start to play around with that, it starts to blow your mind. But it was Einstein who I would argue, I would imagine, after discovering some of these things, said this, you know, there's only two ways to live your life. One is though nothing is a miracle. And the other is as though everything is a miracle. Capacity. I read that this week, and it reminded me of a talk I, I once saw Louis Giglio give on this topic. I don't know if you know Louis Giglio, but he's great at helping you understand the, the greatness of our God. And, and he said this, he goes, you know, you're a miracle, right? You need to start to view yourself with capacity. Though you're but a vapor, tiny and frail, you've been marked by majesty created in the very image of God who breathes out stars and put the universe into place. And, and you and I were fashioned and formed and ordained by the God of all creation. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You're somebody incredibly special. I just want to dial back to the very beginning here about how you happened. One cell from your mom found one cell from your dad. There's more involved there, probably some cocktails, but that's enough for now. One cell from your mom met up with one cell from your dad, and each one of them carried with it 23 chromosomes that made up who they were. And the one from your mom was carrying half of her DNA. The one from your dad was carrying half of his DNA. And those two cells met. A million to one shot. 
and they merged into one single cell. And when they did, those chromosomes matched and began to form together a brand new DNA code using four characters, four nucleotides that began to write out what science has now discovered is the three billion character description of you written in the language of God. They wrote out your DNA, your human genome of three billion characters is made up of those four simple nucleotides. And when they did, they described who God had ordained you to be. In that one little simple cell, scientists say that if you took the DNA just out of that one little cell and you stretched it out, that DNA would be six feet long. Three billion characters stretched out to six feet. So amazing that if I were to read your DNA, one character per second, night and day, it would take me 96 years to read the description of you. And when they formed together, they wrote out, they painted a picture which had never been written or painted before in the history of mankind. And then that one cell did the unthinkable. It set out to build the model from one cell into many. You're a miracle sitting in the building this morning, and you have come a long, long way. Here you are. This picture is probably not in your family album. But this is what the psalmist could see, or couldn't see, but it's what he knew when he, when he understood and wrote this. You formed my inwards parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. And what started with that one cell is now on its way to making the 75 trillion cells that make up your body this morning. Every one of those 75 trillion cells containing the six feet of the three billion character DNA code that is you. There is so much DNA in your body, by the way. If you stretch it out and, and there's enough DNA to go to the moon and back inside your body 178,000 times. That's how amazing God made you to be. It's how unique you are. Why are you trying to be like and look like everybody else? 75 trillion cells in your body. And when I told you that, 50,000 of those cells just died and were replaced by brand new cells. And then just now, 50,000 more of those cells just died and were replaced by brand new cells. It happens every three seconds, day and night, every day of your existence, and you wonder why you're tired all the time. As we sit here, you're a miracle. I love the way Augustine said it, one of the great fathers of the church and faith. He nailed it when he said this, Men go abroad to wonder at the height of mountains and the huge waves of the sea and the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, at the circular motions of the stars, and they pass by themselves without wondering. In life, in the womb, miracles happen every moment. You just have to have the capacity to see. This is so incredible. Check this out. I heard it. I heard Giglio talk about it, and I had to go back and research it because I couldn't believe it. But at about five months old in the womb, here's what happens with your eyes. A million optic nerve endings leave the optic nerve center of your brain, heading for a million optic nerve endings which left your eye, and they meet and match their exact partner. One million looking for one million, and when they find their exact partner, one out of a million, a million out of a million hook up, and immediately you have the capacity to see. Start doing some research on your eye. It's the most technologically advanced thing on the planet. 
But as Giglio said, it doesn't do you any good because when the moment this happened, you still had one piece of skin completely covering your eyeball. I had to go and check this out. It's true, and scientists don't know why yet. Go home and read it up. But somehow, somewhere around the sixth month, a little cutting device appears, and it cuts perfectly that piece of skin, and you have eyelids for the very first time. And you can see in your mother's womb. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. And the God of the heavens is the one who fashioned you with purpose. His purpose with incredible capacity. You know, he knows your name. He knows everything a single thing there is to know about you. He made you with purpose and design. And he's made a promise. For those of you who will trust in him, for those of you who walk by faith, for those of you who will start to see yourselves and others differently, you'll begin to understand his provision. You'll begin to experience his promise. And he will literally hold you in his hand and carry you all the days of your life. Do you know who you are? Do you know who he is? Do you understand about the loaves? Let's stand and close this off.